Alright, everybody, welcome to the February 27th edition of Cascadian Views, our last show of the month before we move on to March. Dan and Chris are both here today, and uh, we've we've had a pretty busy week in Washington this week. Uh, lots happening. Not all of it in Congress. We, uh, we had CPAC, uh, now the annual gathering of conservatives, and it has gotten insanely ridiculous in the last, like eight or nine years. I don't know if you've noticed the steady kind of slide in, in that. No, I think it's always been pretty insane, but yeah, now, as you're alluding to, it's now a cult of personality towards the person of Donald Trump, which, why should there be such a thing in any case? But yeah, yeah. I, that, I think it's that, more than the cult of personality, like... Mm -hmm. Even looking back at it, you know, not even back to, you know, the old, old days, but back to, like, the Bush administration, there was basically zero open racism in CPAC. Mm -hmm. uh, and now that's pretty much front and center. Like, there wouldn't have been... CPAC was never the, like, you know, Clinton body count wing of the conservative party, but it is full-on QAnon and shit now. Right. Yeah. Well... I would argue that the conservative movement is now Clinton body count and full on QAnon. You know what? I, I would 100% agree with that. Party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but just any sort of like veneer of wonkiness or academicness has, has kind of been lost on CPAC. Uh, one of the standout stars of the show this year, Chris, you, you took special pains to mention this. There was a giant golden idol of Trump that they wheeled around the floor. <laughs> Just because. God damn. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of talk about stolen elections to the point that even Right Side News, which is a, a fledgling right-wing news channel, uh, had to break away for a lawyer-mandated disclaimer before all the talk of the, the special election <laughs> that they are not asserting any of this is true and want people to do their own own research. Yeah, and I mean, it's, you know, and it's not even like that they invited speakers who are talking about this, which they did. There are actual panels on how the Democrats stole the election and how the media covered it up. Mm-hmm. There's also some affiliated conferences of out-and-out -out white nationalism that were taking place over the same weekend or same week here in uh, in D.C. I believe uh, Representative Gosar spoke at one of them last night before speaking at CPAC. Um, just absolute nutjob shit that I did not expect to be... I, I guess I still held in the back of my mind that, you know the Trump contingent was a minority that was kind of driving the bus because they were loud and angry, but man, it really is just the entire party now. I think sadly it's true. I mean, to the extent that there's a Republican civil war, it's because 10% of the Republican party maybe is still saying <laughs> and needs to yeah. figure out what they want to do about that. Yeah, and you know, that many anymore, yeah. Yeah, and like I mentioned last week, those people are now telling people to vote for the Democrats. Right. Like, that that 10% is no longer in a civil war with the Republican Party. They're <laughs> straight on boosting the Democrats and telling people to, to vote 
D no matter who. Mm-hmm. Vote blue no matter who. It's it's just, yeah, all that is left of the Republican Party is the frothy mouth conspiracy theorist. <sighs> I guess we'll... We'll continue in Washington then with actual congressional news. Um, we now have a House passed COVID relief bill. It was $1.9 trillion. Uh, it does contain $15 an hour. However, um, that will be stricken from the bill when it gets to the Senate, not because the Senate votes to not have it in there, but because the parliamentarian has kind of, as expected, nixed it for the bird rule. Um, the bird rule mandates that any reconciliation uh, legislation has to be budget neutral past 10 years. It can do whatever it wants to the budget for 10 years, but any projections that go beyond 10 years have to be neutral on the budget. This is why the Bush tax cuts had a sunset in them. This is you know, just kind of how it plays out. Um, there are some things they could do. Um, first of all, Omar is, is Representative Omar is calling for the parliamentarian to be fired. That is incredibly mm-hmm. dumb. The parliamentarian doesn't really have a choice in these. I mean, he could decide to just ignore the rules, but then he wouldn't be doing his job. What would properly happen is that the Senate would vote to overrule the parliamentarian, and then the parliamentarian has a new precedent he has to apply going forward. That's that's kind of how it goes. I don't right. agree with this whole firing him thing. It's not his call. No, I mean, really, the closest precedent you know, I've been aware of for that is, you know, back in 2001, I think there was an issue with so, the Bush Bush tax cuts, which you mentioned. I believe the parliamentarian had nixed certain portions of that, and at that time, that parliamentarian was fired but never overruled. So they ended up <laughs> staying within the ruling, but they just punished the parliamentarian for making this decision. So, yeah, I don't think it's a good idea either. Um, yeah, overruling if there's the votes for it, but clearly there are not. I mean, I don't think Manchin and Cinema, or you know, probably several of the other senators that are on the margin are going to go for that as a solution. I mean, that seems like the main thing to me is it's not really a possible solution. Right. Yeah. Uh, there are some... Or overrule. Yeah. There are some possible solutions they're workshopping. Uh, Chris, you wanted to mention these, so maybe you could mm-hmm. talk about them a little bit. Yeah, well, one of the um, primary ones, the way it basically works is that the government doesn't mandate a minimum wage, but it does fine people who aren't paying $15 an hour by people, I mean corporations, mm-hmm. who have a certain number of employees and aren't paying at least $15 an hour at a minimum to those employees. Right. Well, I thought it was like a tax structure issue, right? It's a tax was. Yeah. Right. I said fine. Yeah. yeah. Credits exactly and... what it is. It's a tax per employee not yeah. being paid. The plan I was seeing bandied about the house would uh, start at 5% if a company has any employees making under $15 an hour and then ramp up at a progressive scale as more and more employees are under 15 an hour. Mm-hmm. Which would also just through you know, sheer force of numbers mean that it hits bigger companies harder than hits smaller companies, which I think is probably a feature of the plan. Mm -hmm. Larger companies are also going to be in a better position to, you know, comply, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, know, use their economies of scale to actually pay a living wage. 
Yeah. Uh, this is not the only maneuver. I know there's a few people talking about, as we mentioned, overruling the parliamentarian, but I, I just, I think that's no, like, just not an option. <laughs> I don't think we have the votes for it. Um, <laughs> although we may have picked up a, a, a strange kind of Republican uh, co-sponsor in this. I, I saw Holly out of Missouri is co-sponsoring a $15 an hour minimum wage bill. Did you guys see Holly? that? Yeah. Wasn't, there's got to be some kind of horrific trade-off that he's having on that. <laughs> I, I can't yeah. imagine that he is you know, proposing that straight out without, like, say, eliminating OSHA or something like that. <laughs> Let me but. see if I can get... Uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, Billy's co-sponsoring with Bernie Sanders. Huh. Um, huh. And it's, it's basically the Senate implementation of the House Compromise. Um, it's uh, planned to tax not all companies, but Fortune 1000 companies who don't pay their workers at least $15 an hour. Um, yeah. Interesting. So we, we may have a potential uh, Republican uh, uh, help on there. And by the way, he's putting it up. Uh, he is working with Sanders on the bill, but he's putting it up as a um, an alternative to Sanders, just straight across the board one. But he's mm -hmm. trying to make it as palatable to Democrats as possible by actually working with them to write it. And I assume it's a standalone bill that's separate from the whole COVID relief package. Uh... Or is it an amendment? Let's see here. It does not say in the article I'm reading, so I'm, I'm not sure about that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Holly released a statement on this that says, uh, basically the progressive argument, for decades the wages of everyday working Americans have remained stagnant while monopoly corporations have consolidated industry after industry, securing record profits for CEOs and investment bankers. Mm -hmm. You know what? I've actually wondered if more... Republicans could be brought on board some version of this because I keep remembering something and I don't remember exactly when it happened, but it was Rick Santorum of all people like talking about this years ago and saying, we have to depoliticize this. This has to be like, you know, a regular indexed annual increase. Uh, Holly's yeah. plan does do that. Uh, it would then tie the uh, median wage to inflation. Right. Uh, uh, excuse okay. me, the minimum wage, not the medium wage. Uh, it would require the minimum wage for billion-dollar-plus corporations to be indexed to the federal median wage after 2025. So it would be tied to the average wage um, across the country after 2025. But it would be $15 an hour immediately. Um, he also introduced a, a another piece of legislation kind of as a companion to this, the blue-collar bonus uh, and that's kind of the flip side where this wouldn't penalize small companies that aren't able to pay $15 an hour. It does provide um, an immediate advanceable tax credit to people making under $15 an hour. So it doesn't penalize the company, but it does bump up the employees through a tax credit. So all in all, I'm actually kind of hopeful we might get some Republican bites on $15 an hour, if okay. this is any indication. Maybe. I mean, all 
I'll assume that Hawley's serious about this issue when he leads an armed mob to storm Walmart corporate headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I do wonder if this is part of his uh, repair job. From the... Could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please don't pay attention to that thing I did. Other than armed insurrection. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so with the $15 an hour taken out of the bill, at least for now, it seems like it's on a pretty set path for passing. I mean, everybody else seems pretty happy with everything in it. It was really only a holdup over this, right? I mean, Manchin said he'd prefer a slightly smaller package, but, you know, in the end, he's okay with it. Yeah. That, was, that was basically his argument, if I remember right. Like, I, I can't get everything going. I want. Yeah, I don't think it'd be going this far if it weren't being vetted by him pretty thoroughly all along the way. Because <laughs> they need that 50th vote, as we have learned. Yeah, he's, really badly. he's basically the shadow Senate majority leader. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then the other news out of Washington uh, this week is President Biden has launched his first military action uh, since taking office. This comes on the heels of rocket strikes against uh, combined formations of American and Kurdish troops in northern Iraq in the last week and a half. Um, he ordered military airstrikes to be taken out on the locations where the rocket attacks were launched from, according to U.S. intelligence. Um, we don't believe these facilities were facilities of a Syrian government. We believe that they uh, were set up by Iran-backed militias in Syria, who are part of the ongoing civil war over there. Um, there's... A lot of consternation about this. Um, it does kind of tie into that forever war kind of complaint that people were, were lobbying against Biden. However, it also is no boots on the ground, and it is direct retaliation for an attack on Americans. It's not like he just picked some place and bombed it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, it wasn't even like he hit other facilities of these people in retaliation. He hit the, the actual places the rockets were launched, at least according to the CIA and the NSA, um, assuming you trust them. And as I mentioned in the group, I haven't seen anybody raise any doubts about the intelligence finding. It's not like, you know, Iraq and yellow cake uranium or anything like that. Um, so it, right. it seemed totally fine to me. <laughs> like... It seemed exactly what the president should do, more or less. He's not invading Syria. He's directly taking out a threat to American lives and wiping his hands and calling it good, at least as it seems now. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I, I think... The... No, I think we got Go ahead, traffic Sorry. jam there. Yeah, yeah I... I can't say I've really got a significant objection to anything, at least on the merits of this. Uh, I think it is, if it's if everything is as it's been presented, then I mean that's exactly it. It's a limited strike in response to a direct attack, and that's kind of what we expect the military to do. 
Um, and I really have no tears to shed over a group of, you know, paramilitaries like this that are, you know, backing one of the most murderous regimes on the planet. So, you know, I don't, yeah, see a major issue, at least on the merits. I mean, I think we talked a little bit in the group that it is kind of crazy about how limited the role of Congress has become in these sorts of foreign adventures, but Congress has also kind of put itself in a position where either either foreign or domestic, there's it's just not really able to move in a manner that you really need, you know, barely even for domestic policy anymore, let alone foreign. So I think we end up seeing, yeah, the presidency filling these gaps. I don't even think the authorization of use of, of military force from the war on terror era is, is necessary here. Um, mm -hmm. If I recall correctly, the commander-in-chief has, you know, total okayness for anything under 48 hours or something like that. Like, any military actions that are longer than 48 hours require congressional approval because you're getting into, like, war territory there, but these sorts of limited... This whole thing was over in, like, 45 minutes. I don't right. think there's a goddamn thing Congress could have done about it anyway. So it was like when Clinton would launch a cruise missile at somebody. Like, it's over and done with so quick, and it was always the president's prerogative. I, I just... I don't really see the complaint there, unless your complaint is that we're getting more involved in Syria, which, you know, if we're actually doing that, that would require congressional approval, which we have because of the war on terror, AUMF, but in a perfect world, we'd need a new one. Uh, but this doesn't seem to be that. There were no troops involved. There was a pilot, uh, three pilots, I believe. But yeah, <laughs> there were like three planes flying a sortie uh, and then landing back at an American base. <laughs> like, nothing seems wrong there. That seems like perfectly acceptable behavior. Yeah. Yeah, I think the issue, to the extent there is one, is really more with the optics of the whole thing, you know? Like with the, um, the crowd that I've seen a lot of in the last few days saying, so Biden decided to bomb but won't raise the minimum wage. Which They're literally trying to raise so the minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that kind of thing is horrendous bad faith. <laughs> but because, I mean, yeah. really what you need to raise, you do need the the Congress to raise the minimum wage. That's just, it's legislation. It's <laughs> Exactly. The one thing the president can do on his own is is bond things. <laughs> yeah. That's the structure. He can't raise the minimum government. wage all on his own. <laughs> Yeah. He can bomb things and award medals. Yeah, that's really the extent of his like personal powers. Right. Uh, uh, watch this space, though, in case there is something, something more coming in Syria. I mean, we can't do anything in Syria now, but I actually really wish we had. I mean, that place is such a fucking mess. Um, yeah. And, yeah... I know nobody elected America the world's policeman, but at the same time, there's nobody else equipped to be the world's policeman. Uh, and when we get into, like, out-and-out out crimes against humanity, which Assad is 100% guilty of, he launched nerve gas attacks. There was an international, like, international incident because Russia nerve-gassed two people. 
an old spy, and then a, uh, a dissident in their own country in the last 10 years. And it is considered to be horrendous. Assad has nerve-gassed like six different cities, entire populations, and nobody right. seems to give a fuck anymore. I, I do not understand that at all, and it, it fucking crushes me. It really does. Like, the fact that this sort of thing goes on in the world today, completely unpunished, is mind-boggling to me. But same time, we've let it go on so long, and waiting in there now is just so terrible that we, we, we just, we can't anymore. But god damn, I wish we had. I really It's going do. on 10 years now, yeah. Yeah. And I think Obama had been making noises about some kind of interview. Yeah, he announced pretty, a red line. He was pretty roundly spanked by Congress for that, though. You know, don't you dare. And I can kind of understand the gun shyness also, because in the late aughts, early 2010s, who wanted to go and get more involved in the Middle East again? But, I mean, you make a good point in terms of the global policemen as well. It's interesting you mentioned Russia in the same breath, because in the absence of that, what you have is, you know, when you don't have police in the real world, you've got mafioso stepping in and... uh, behaving as a quasi-police, but it's not the kind of police you want. Yeah, and just, I wish we could categorize these things differently. Like, you know, there are plenty of imperialism adventures that the United States has gone on, um, but there's also actual goddamn humanitarian action, and I wish we were more okay with the second one. I really do. Um... Like every time China tries to step all over Taiwan, I feel the same way. Or, or Hong Kong or whatnot. Just watching oppression bear down on people, like, really unfree conditions. Um, and, and just yeah. standing by just makes it feel like we tarnish our image as, you know, the quote-unquote leader of the free world even more every day. I just, I, I hate watching that happen. I really do. Yeah, some of it's, you know, I think Iraq war hangover a little bit, but, you know, this is definitely a broader discussion, but we've really, there's not, not a very robust discussion, at least in terms of foreign policy in this country, either on the left or the right, because... On the right, it tends to be, you know, if if the if there's a Republican in office, you know, support the troops, bomb everybody, blah, blah, blah. If, if there's a Democrat, then it becomes, you know, stay out, you know, we're not the global policemen, you know, we've got problems here at home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, on the left, it's not that much better, more just a consistent, oh my gosh, now you're going to go bombing brown children and the debate just gets shut off at that. Uh, it's, yeah, it's unfortunate because, you know, like we've been saying, there is an awful lot of good that can be done with American power, but we've got some pretty obvious examples of horrendous uses of American power in our lifetimes that have been so negative and so destructive that, yeah, there's just no reasonable discussion happening anymore. I think there's a little bit of racism that colors it, too. Um, Sure. Just look at the response back in the 90s. Look at the response 
the West had to genocide in Rwanda. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely terrible. And we were concerned, but we, we mostly just expressed our concern through Susan Collins-esque letters and, and resolutions yeah. of the UN and whatnot. We didn't really do anything. We just let all those right. people die. And then Bosnia happens, and the Bosniaks are Muslims, but they're white Muslims. And all of a sudden, NATO is stepping in to make sure that nobody touches fucking anybody. You know, we're bombing the shit out of Serbian tanks, going for Croats and, and Bosnian villages and whatnot. Where we're pulling down. We bombed the Chinese embassy by accident. We were so gung ho on like making sure nothing happened there. Uh, and just, I, I find it weird that we get all torn up about things in white countries and yet uh, never lift a finger to help when. Uh, these things are happening to, say, Asians or uh, Arabs or Africans. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm, I agree with the idea that we need that larger discussion because the real problem is going back decades, you know, decades and decades of choices mm-hmm. about U.S. action abroad that have not been based on advancing democracy. Occasionally, they've aligned with that, but they've usually been based with, you know, real politic, big power interests, which, okay, if if that's what we're doing, then maybe just say that's what we're doing. And, you know, well, that's say also we'll join unpopular. up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as yeah. it should be. Yeah. <laughs> I would argue that isn't what we should be doing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's interesting you say that they don't, uh, they aren't the same, but they sometimes align. Um, because I, I felt kind of the same way about this one. Part of the attack, probably the biggest motivator for Biden was that the attack was on American troops. One of the big things for me is that it was also on Kurdish troops. Um, I have a real soft spot for autonomous Kur- uh, Kurdistan, which is the top third of Iraq and the closest thing to a country that the Kurds have. They're spread out over four countries. They're pretty oppressed in all of them. They're actively killed by Turkey. Um, In Iraq, they have complete freedom to set their own laws. There are some federalism standards that they have to adhere to to be part of Iraq, but the rest of Iraq has basically no influence inside Kurdistan. Um, And it is, I, I don't know if I go so far as to say flourishing, but it is a recognizable country. Um, its GDP, I mentioned in the group, is twice that uh, per capita as the rest of Iraq. It's got a 50% higher literacy rate. They have incredible respect for human rights, including uh, women's schooling, which is rare in the region. It is a flourishing democracy that I absolutely think that we need to protect. And Iraq is not protecting it. Uh, when ISIS left, Iraq just ran the fuck away and left the Kurds with a 1,500-mile wide front with ISIS that they had to defend. Um, and they did. They not only did that, but they incorporated other parts of Iraq and defended them too. Um, I just, uh, I really want to see that place stand on its own two feet, basically. I, I don't, the Kurds have suffered quite a bit, and it is a, a wonderful example of what a democracy in the Middle East can look like, something that we have precious few of. So. All right. Um, Chris, in legal news, uh, we have some updates on the Trump tax, uh, tax case, which was given the go-ahead by the Supreme Court last week. You say things have now started moving there? 
Yeah, so the um, tax records have officially been handed over to the Manhattan DA. Um, the New York Attorney General has been looking for them as well. <laughs> they also have a case open, so both jurisdictions have a case open. And presumably she'll get them, you know, the ruling is kind of like the precedent. Mm. So if she doesn't already have them, she'll probably get them shortly as well. And this, uh, we, we still don't know exactly what they're up to, but we do know that they have been looking for the tax returns, also looking very broadly into activities of the Trump organization, um, certainly looking at the Michael Cohen stuff, like the payoffs to Stormy Daniels and to the National Enquirer and things like that. But they also seem to be looking at more uh, broadly based financial improprieties like tax fraud, possibly money laundering. So defrauding creditors and things like that with, you know, yeah. improper presentation of assets in his books. Yeah. A big one is defrauding right. the U.S. government. That's what the audit that's been going on for like 12 years is all about. Um, I've explained the whole story behind that once before, but he claimed a walk away tax credit, which allows you to completely write off a business if you just shut it down, like just throw it away, basically. Um, and he did not do that. He exchanged that uh, that business for a share in another business, which is not a, a true walk away. Um, and yet he wrote off the assets of that company completely. So uh, that was the Atlantic City Casino that he claimed was a, a walk away, but he actually got, I believe, was a 5% stake in the next casino company. Right. Hmm. Yeah, so interesting in all that. I did see that apparently um, authorities in New Jersey are kind of zeroing in on Don Jr., that he's been the subject of a few interviews this week. I don't know if you saw that, Aww. Chris. I did not. <laughs> it would have warmed my heart, though. <laughs> yeah. If you want to talk about financials, if I were a grand jury on this, the moment that grand jury is disempaneled. You are free to talk about it. I bet you you can sell that interview to somebody for seven figures. I almost guarantee you can get like $3 million to go on CNN and talk about everything you saw during that trial. <laughs> yeah. Like, there are people who will pay good money for that. <laughs> if you are at all interested in making that money, the moment your jury service ends, you are no longer bound to secrecy. It's only the lawyer's... It's it's not you. So, please, please, somebody let us know what's in that. Yeah, I am still interested in the question of, um, of the whole Russian financials interaction with the Trump organization, because there's clearly something there, and also clearly the feds did not end up doing it. Um... You know, the basic story on that is that the FBI assumed that Mueller was doing it. Mueller decided it was outside his scope, and so nobody did it. Sounds I'm not sure right. if the Manhattan DA or the New York AG is the proper place to do it, but this is an investigation that has not happened in depth. Manhattan DA is probably as good a choice as any. <laughs> Lots of We're banks. We're talking about obstruction charges, aren't we? I mean, that would be... Hmm, well, anyhow. Lots of banks are, are headquartered in New York. Um, he probably mm -hmm. has the best jurisdiction out of anybody to look into that. 
Uh, yeah, certainly. I, I just didn't know if the um, foreign aspect of it would fall within what he could do, but the actual activity itself was in New York State and in New York City, so one or the other of them could certainly do something with it, I would think. Oh, yeah, and even if the actual activity wasn't, I, I will bet you there's like an 85% chance that whatever bank transfers happened transferred through wires running through New York City, which is enough to give him uh, jurisdiction of that. They charge yeah. financial crimes for that sort of stuff all the time. If you commit fraud mm -hmm. in a U.S. bank, even if you and the fraud target are both outside of America, that crime happened in America because the bank servers where the money transferred were in America. Um, and I guess we'll we'll move on to our, our local stories here. We do have a couple of them, two fairly big court cases. Um, I'll talk about the Oregon one first here, I guess. Um, Last year, the Supreme Court struck down a fairly unusual uh, jury rule. The only two states that had it were Oregon and Louisiana, and they allowed convictions um, with a less than unanimous jury. Oregon allowed convictions with 10 out of 12 voting to convict. Um, I don't remember what Louisiana's were specifically. These sorts of, of rules with the jury are typically associated with racist attitudes towards justice. You know, you generally don't have more than a couple of black people on a jury. So if you can get 10 white people on a jury to say the black guy did it, um, it's enough to throw him in jail. Oregon had a little wrinkle to ours, though, in that the uh, non-unanimous rule applied to both convictions and acquittals. Uh, if 10 people say you're not guilty, it doesn't matter if two say you are guilty, you're not guilty and can't be charged again. Um, that's different from a hung jury, where the jury can't agree on a verdict, and then the state, if it chooses to, can pursue the case again because there was no verdict reached. Uh, the Oregon Supreme Court has now stated that non-unanimous acquittals will remain law in Oregon, that they're not covered by the Supreme Court case disallowing non-unanimous juries for convictions. So, a little bit interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that, Dan, since you are a legal expert? So, well, I haven't done a lot of criminal practice, but, yeah, I mean, your description of the history of uh, non-unanimous verdicts is sound. I mean, that's really been the idea behind a lot of them, and that's part of the reason that courts and legal system and, uh, what am I saying, legislatures have been steadily eroding them over the last, you know, several decades up to this point. And yeah, Oregon and Louisiana were definitely the outliers in those, you know, that treatment. Um, functionally speaking, a non-unanimous acquittal is, I mean, it's, it's, a little bit more effective than requiring a unanimous, you know, not guilty verdict, if only because, you know, a mistrial may just as, or hung jury may just as often result in, you know, a prosecution not continuing anyhow, depending on the crime. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a marginal, uh, it's on the margin, but it's, it's it's definitely one of those legal curiosities. You know. Do you think uh, it's going to be overturned? Do you think the same rules that apply to convictions are going to apply to acquittals? No, no, I, I can't see what the you know the compelling interest in that would be really. So, no, I don't think so. I think it will probably stand. Okay. 
All right, then. Uh, our other case is actually up in Washington. I don't know if you want to be the one to actually take the, the helm of this, Dan, or if you... Let's see. Do I have that up? Uh, yeah, well, you'd mentioned uh, this was something that you threw up in the group a couple, like I think, last night. The uh, Washington Supreme Court has struck down uh, strict liability for uh, drug possession. Now, was this for all drugs, or was this... Uh, just for certain uh, certain hard drugs, I didn't quite see. It's it it's for to. the entire drug possession statute, uh, including oh. all of its subheaders, which would apply, you know, to different levels of controlled substances. Okay. So you know, the idea is they have to. There, there's now an intent requirement as opposed to just the fact that you happen to have, you know, whichever restricted substance. In your possession at the time, so you have, they have to. There has to be some demonstration that you were aware of it, and that, yeah, you were intending to have illegal ownership of the of the substance. Which we talked about this a little bit beforehand is a major breakthrough in, you know, the go-to example has always been that you should not, you know, under any circumstances keep something in your car. Because you, if you get into any kind of, uh, what's the term I'm thinking of, probable cause to search it comes fairly easily. You know, just basically just on any kind of traffic infraction, you get pulled over and the cops can look at everything you have in the car. So one thing that would get people tripped up, as you mentioned, was, you know, might not even be their drugs, but... You know, people share a vehicle. Somebody left a small amount of a substance in the car that could result in a conviction because there was strict liability. It was in your possession. You're the one that gets charged. Uh, so this would uh, at least eliminate that as something that places somebody in jeopardy. There'd have to be at least some demonstration that uh, they were aware that they actually had it. So, you know, the first thing you should say is one lawyer, two, I didn't know that was there. Mm -hmm. The uh, the case that actually brought this about, I guess, involves uh, police arresting a woman uh, on suspicion of stealing a car um, and found a small, very small bag containing methamphetamine in the coin pocket of the jeans. Uh, the woman had bought the jeans secondhand two days before. Uh, it was the first time she had worn them. She had the receipt from Goodwill where she had bought them secondhand. She said she had absolutely zero idea they were in there she didn't search the coin pocket as opposed to the other pockets um and court agreed with her um but yeah uh men's uh the actual quote from the court uh decision the constitutional protections afforded certain personal liberties implicated by rcw 69504013 are one the principle that the existence of a mens rea is the rule of rather than the exception to the principles of anglo-american criminal jurisprudence and two the rule that the government cannot criminalize essentially innocent conduct Mens rea yeah. is that you have to have a guilty mind. Guilty you have mind. to, yeah. You have to know the, your the intent portion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, is there anything anybody else wants to talk about? No. All right. 
We'll call it here then, guys. Have a good week. All right. All right. You too. Bye.